We've been uh, going through kind of contemplative issues, and I sort of want to go in this vein, but maybe take a little bit of a, of a side tour today. Um, I've, I've uh, posed this question before, and uh, I'm going to pose it again, because I've got new people for whom my jokes are still new, stuff like that, you know? Hey, Jason, good to see you. What is the goal of the spiritual life? I mean, why are we doing this thing? Why, why put forth the effort? Why come to church on Sunday? Why carve out time for devotions or prayer or quiet time in the morning? Why think along these lines? Why try to make your actions match with what you say you believe? What is the purpose of all of this? What do you hope to gain at the end of this spiritual journey or in the middle of the spiritual journey or right now at the beginning of the spiritual journey? You know, these are questions that sometimes we don't ask or we have fuzzy kind of amorphous responses to. You know, a lot of times we say love, we want peace, we want tranquility, we want better relationships. All those are great things. But what really is the goal of the spiritual life? I think there are two reasons that I believe that the goal of the spiritual life really and absolutely is freedom. And I don't know how that sounds to you. If freedom sounds like it should be the goal of our spiritual life, But the first reason I say that is because that's what Jesus said. And I like to base my stuff on what Jesus says. You know, you can look at the top of your bulletins if you want to. um, At John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus says, if you continue in my word. Now that's code for doing everything I do, living as I live, relate as I relate, love as I love. Word is a very expansive word there. It means everything that composed and comprised his way of life, his thought, his concept, but all his a- also his actions. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples. Not because you say you are. Not because you believe you are. Not because we signed the same bottom of the creed and the tenets of our faith. Not because our website has the same statement of faith. But if you continue in my word, you are my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will make you free. So freedom is the end of this thing. To first live a life that emulates Christ, that moves us into a truth. And make no mistake, for us as theists, truth is a person. It's not a data set. And this is so important for us to understand. This truth that we're after, this truth that we're going to know, the truth that makes us free is not something we can hold in our heads. It's nothing that we can give voice to. In fact, the moment we give voice to it, the moment we include it in some set of words, we've already moved it away from that which can set us free. The truth that sets us free is knowing a person, the relationship with the person, the apprehension of of ultimate reality, if you will, that gives us identity, gives us meaning, gives us purpose, and ultimately gives us freedom. But the second reason that I also believe that freedom is the goal of the spiritual journey is that nothing is worth having unless it was freely chosen. I want you to think about that for a second. Nothing is worth having unless it's freely chosen. And the ultimate there is love. Love is not love unless it's freely chosen. Sometimes I get pushback on that, but think about it. If love is coerced in any way, is it still love? It has to be freely chosen. So this part of us that is created in God's image, this part of us that is God-like, as the Bible says, 
is the part of us that is free to choose. Because we can freely choose, we have the ability to love as God loves because God loves absolutely freely, without precondition, without requirement. This notion of, pre- of unconditional love, this notion of absolute love, is predicated on complete freedom of choice. So to the extent we can love like God loves, we have to have this free choice. And so freedom, the question is, how free are we? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Because if we're not free, then we are not free to love. We can't love. And think about it. This kingdom of Jesus, and for those of you who are just starting out, maybe newcomers, kingdom of heaven, this main concept that Jesus hung all his teaching on, can't be understood as heaven of the next life because that doesn't meet the context that Jesus gives it. doesn't meet the context that Judaism gives it, who doesn't really have a set notion of the afterlife at all. Kingdom, as Jesus uses it, is the here-now quality of life that we can have when we are completely free. To be free completely is to be in kingdom, and to be in kingdom is to be completely free. Free from fear, free from obsession and compulsion, free from all the things that we do out of need, out of codependence, out of necessity. Not free to be here now, not free to see who's right in front of us, not free to choose for the good of everyone who's in our blast zone at any given moment. That kind of freedom is what we're talking about. And Jesus was completely free, completely free to be exactly who he was. Think about everything that you know about stories of Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Jesus was completely free to be a drunkard and a glutton, to be called a drunkard and a glutton, which meant he wasn't afraid to celebrate. He wasn't afraid to party. He wasn't afraid what all the sourpusses in his particular religious hierarchy were going to say when they caught him partying and caught him laughing uproariously and eating. Why don't you fast the way that John fasts? Well, it's not appropriate right now. But Jesus fasted as well. We're told about his fast in the desert. He was free to fast. He was free not to fast. He was free to do all of these things. He was free to be undignified, which for a Jewish male was one of the big no-nos culturally. But we've talked about this before. When Jesus worked with children, played with children, he really played with children. You've got to imagine him giving horseback rides and getting his beard pulled and squealing and laughing and tickling. He wouldn't have been a kid magnet in every village he went into where the children rushed to greet him if they didn't know that about him intrinsically, instantly, and then by experience as well. He wasn't afraid to get down in the dirt and play with the kids. He was free to laugh. He was free to weep. He wasn't afraid of emotion. When it was appropriate, he let it go. He wasn't afraid to speak truth to whomever and wherever He wasn't afraid to speak truth to power and let the chips fall where they may, which led him to the cross, of course. But he would speak that truth because he had no fear of that. He was free to lead, but he was also free to serve. His example of washing his disciples' feet is the biggest example of his freedom to be abjectly submitted to the people that he was leading to take on that menial and, and most disgusting task from a Jewish perspective that was relegated to the lowest of the slaves, 
Jesus willingly takes it on. He was free to do that. He was free, and this is a big one, to let his friends leave him. This is so difficult. To speak truth, to be who you are, and to know that you're going to lose your friends over this. At one point, a large part of his company left him because of what he said about the Eucharist, about eating his body and drinking his blood, trying to make an understanding breakthrough to them. But they left him over that. He was free to be betrayed, and then he was free to forgive that betrayal. He was free to be angry when that was appropriate. And of course, he was free to die. He was completely free to be exactly who he was, no matter what anyone thought. That's freedom. That's kingdom. Now think about it. Where do you fit on this scale of freedom? How free are you? How free are you from what you think other people think of you? How free are you from the standards that you have in your head or the standards that were imposed upon you as a child that have never left your head to do the things that you think you need to do in order to be fill in the blank? Good enough? Advanced enough? Pretty enough? Educated enough? Accomplished enough? Loved enough? Accepted enough? All these things that we compulsively do because we're not free to see the truth. The truth is, we already have that acceptance. We have that love. But until we know that, and not understand it intellectually, but have it so deep down in our spirits that we can live it, then Jesus would say, well, you just can't go where I'm going. The unfortunate translation is, you're not worthy of me. Eh, it means you can't go where he's going. You're not going to be able to get there. So this truth that sets us free is this knowing the Father of life in such a way that you know that none of this matters, none of this striving, none of this fear. We can actually be free. And so the question becomes, how are we going to get this knowledge? You know? Well, one way to do it is to wait for life to strip away all the other stuff. And it will do that eventually. Life has a way of mugging you. Life has a way of continuing to strip away all of the things that you have built up to try to make yourself feel good enough, which is now what you are a slave to, which is now what you are beholden to. I wanted to read a little, little essay. And it's interesting because this essay shows up all over the internet, mostly attributed to anonymous but sometimes attributed to somebody, and there's different versions of it. So I put the best version together that I liked, and we'll call it anonymous. But the title of it is Old Age is a Gift. Old Age, I decided, is a gift, and obviously this is written by an old person. I am now probably for the first time in my life the person I have always wanted to be. Oh, not my body. I sometimes despair over my body. The wrinkles, the baggy eyes, the sagging butt... And often I am taken aback by that old person that lives in my mirror. But I don't agonize over those things for long. I would never trade my amazing friends, my wonderful life, my loving family for less gray hair or a flatter belly. As I've aged, I've become more kind and less critical of myself. I've become my own friend. I don't chide myself for eating that extra cookie 
or not making my bed or for buying that silly cement gecko that I didn't need but looked so avant-garde on my patio. I am entitled to overeat, to be messy, to be extravagant. I have seen too many dear friends leave this world too soon before they understood the great freedom that comes with aging. Whose business is it if I choose to read or play on the computer until 4 a.m. and sleep until noon? I will dance with myself to those wonderful tunes of the 60s, and if I, at the same time, wish to weep over a lost love, I will. I will walk the beach in a swimsuit that is stretched over a bulging body and will dive into the waves with abandon if I choose to, despite the pitying glances from the bikini set. They, too, will get old. I know I am sometimes forgetful, but there again, some of life is just as well forgotten. And I eventually remember the important things. Sure, over the years, my heart has been broken. How can your heart not break when you lose a loved one or when a child suffers or when a beloved pet gets hit by a car? But broken hearts are what give us strength, understanding, and compassion. A heart never broken is pristine and sterile and will never know the joy of being imperfect. I am so blessed to have lived long enough to have my hair turn gray and to have my youthful laughs forever etched into deep grooves on my face. So many have never laughed, and so many have died before their hair could turn silver. I can say no and mean it. I can say yes and mean it. As you get older, it's easier to be positive. You care less about what other people think. I don't question myself anymore. I've learned, I've earned the right to be wrong. I like being old. It has set me free. I like the person I have become. I'm not going to live forever, but while I am still here, I will not waste time lamenting what could have been or worrying about what will be, and I will eat dessert every day if I feel like it. <laughs> the wisdom that comes with age sometimes but see even here in old age there's a catch you still have to be willing you have to be willing to let life teach you you have to be willing to let go of all the things that you've carried around for 40 50 60 70 years and not everybody goes there not everybody grows wise everybody gets old but sometimes we just get old because we're still not willing to let go, to put this stuff down. Old age is no guarantee, but it is a main stripper away of all of this stuff that we cling to, all the stuff that enslaves us, all the stuff that keeps us from being free. So you can wait for old age to strip you down to freedom if you want to, or you can actually take an affirmative path. You can start to follow Jesus' way on purpose, And it will also strip you of everything that you're facing, everything that is keeping you from being free. This is what we're talking about here. Following Jesus' way, this way that will strip us of everything that is false, the same way life will, but consciously, on purpose, doing it when we're still young enough to be able to enjoy the freedom well, we still have life. But here's where it gets tricky. The motives, the intent we have for following Jesus' way, for engaging in this spiritual life, can get in the way. 
Why are you engaging this spiritual way? If you are, what are you really going after? You have to ask yourself that because the answer is not so forthcoming. And if you are after anything less than real, true freedom, you will miss the mark of kingdom. Now, why is that? Why would that be? Because maybe you're looking for love. Maybe you're looking for peace. Maybe you're looking for tranquility, service to others, or a closeness to God, a sense of a closeness to God, or knowledge of God. All those things. And all those things are great. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with them. But what are any of those without freedom? We just talked about love. But any of those without freedom can be simply expressions of insecurity, expressions of codependency, the need for love, the need for acceptance that we don't feel inside. Causes us to act out in codependent ways. Causes us to act out in ways that destroy relationships, that destroy our sense of self. Even grabbing onto our religion, grabbing onto our spirituality can have the same effect. If we're doing it out of fear, if we're doing it because we're looking for salvation, we're trying to grab onto salvation, those can still be the motives that will turn this thing into less and less freedom. If we are after security, we are losing freedom. You ever notice how security and freedom are inversely proportional? (laughs) As one goes up, the other goes down. If your motive is security, looking for these things, then you are going to be missing freedom. And if you miss freedom, you miss everything. Love isn't love without freedom. And yet you're after it? Tranquility and peace is nothing. It's whistling past the graveyard without freedom. We need to check our motives and find out what it is we're really after. And the truth is that most of us fall short of actually going for freedom. It's too radical. Freedom is radical. It's scary. To be completely free is to also be completely unsecured. Not insecure, unsecured. To be at risk if you are completely free. You know? Think about those pioneers on the prairie. Completely free. They could plop down and build a house anywhere they wanted to, right? But then where was 911 when the Indians came? See, completely free, completely at risk. That's the way it works. So we're constantly trading security for freedom. Now, a certain amount of that is what we need to do to be able to live in community, to live in society. But are we balanced? That's what we're looking for. And to really go for complete spiritual freedom is as radical as that. You will feel unsecured. You will feel at risk. And if you're not willing to do that, then you can't go where Jesus is going. And so it's just too much for us. And this is what Jesus talks about when he talks about the narrow gate and the narrow way that leads to life. And few go that way. And the way that leads to destruction is wide. And many are going that way. He's not talking about heaven and hell again. He's talking about this phenomenon right here. Are you really willing to go for freedom in all that it takes. Because the truth is, freedom is risky business. It costs us everything, and not many of us are really willing to pay. I wanted to bring your attention to the next quote that's on your bulletins, and this might seem a little strange because it comes from Thomas Jefferson and from the Declaration of Independence, but it is a, it is a passage that always jumped out at me from my earliest readings of the Declaration. And read what he writes here. He's talking about giving reasons 
giving justification for the colonies separating from Great Britain and the crown. And he writes, Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. Think about that for just a second. What is he saying? He's saying, even if what you have established, whether it's in your government or whether it's in your life, if it's oppressive, it is, if it, it is the opposite of freedom in your life, you will still suffer it. It is still for as long as you possibly can. Because to change it means that it's going to have to get worse before it gets better. And it might have to get a lot worse before it gets better. And that's exactly what was going on at this time. There were 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. And they didn't go into this lightly. They knew what they were getting into. They knew what war with Britain was going to be like. And they knew that they were the underdogs. But freedom for them was so important. To get shut of all of the trappings of of the British crown was so important that they dove into it anyway. They signed the declaration. They put themselves on the line. And these were men of means. These were men that were highly educated. 24 of the 56 were lawyers or jurists. 11 of them were wealthy merchants. And another nine had large plantations, were farmers. They had a lot to lose. They had a lot at stake. They knew what they were getting into. They understood the risks. And the risks came with the war. Many of them had their houses burned. Many of them had family members who were killed either directly or indirectly by the war. Some of them were captured during the conflict. Some of them were killed during the conflict. Many of them lost their fortunes completely. Some of them got them back. Others did not. But it had to get a lot worse before it could get better. Some of you look at our government and our world right now and you say, how in the world can this continue? You know, Because most of us are doing just that. We're going to continue to live our lives for as long as we possibly can until it just becomes absolutely intolerable because to take it down in order to get to what we understand as greater freedom is going to be so costly and so difficult personally and collectively. And Jefferson hits it right on the head and yet they went for it anyway. Who were these people? Who were these people that were inclined to do such a thing? You know, the colonists of America were kind of a, a self-selecting and, um, and really almost unique group of people. And if you just think of the pilgrims, you know, the ones that came across on the Mayflower, isn't there a song about that, and landed on Plymouth Rock? These people back in England in the mid-1500s, were a group of separatists. They had separated away from the Church of England. Now, if you know anything about the Church of England right after the Reformation, the, the king and the church were one. There was no, there's no daylight between them. The, church, the king was actually the head of the church, the way Henry VIII set it up. And so to break away from the church was also to break away from the crown. To criticize the church was to criticize the crown. And they did all these things, and they were getting repercussions. Their houses were being raided, they were being imprisoned. So in the late 1500s, they fled to Netherlands. And they lived there for about 10 years. But what happened there is their kids started speaking Dutch, and they didn't want that. They started uh, uh, adopting Dutch uh, customs. 
fighting in the Dutch army, and so they realized they needed to get out of there, and they weren't away from the, uh, the reach of England either. The English still came over and tried to imprison them, and so they started making arrangements to be able to go to the New World. And it took them several years before they got the funding and they got two ships, the Mayflower and the Speedwell, and they had 130 people that were ready to go. And they were going to go early in the year of 1620. But all the delays due to financing and infighting and politics were dragging on until ready. They weren't ready to leave until July of that year. And then there was another month due to, due to problems with the ship. And finally, the Speedwell couldn't make the journey because it was unseaworthy and it was leaking and all these problems. They didn't finally leave Plymouth Harbor in England until September of 1620, which meant that they were, after a two-month sea voyage, going to be hitting the, the east coast of North America in the dead of winter, which is exactly what they didn't want to do. After two months at sea, and you have to try to imagine this, 130 people on a 109-foot boat. 109 feet. That's like from here to that window across the courtyard. 130 people on a 109-foot boat. Two months at sea. Two months at sea. You're not seeing any land. You don't know where you're going. Imagine what that would be like. Imagine the smell. No one's taking showers. You've got to picture this in your head, right? And then they finally land and, and the winds are against them and er- they can't land where they were supposed to. They were supposed to set up shop at the mouth of the Hudson. They ended up at Cape Cod. And once they finally found a suitable place to land that didn't have Indian problems and everything else going on, it's the dead of winter. They ended up spending six months on the Mayflower, just anchored off the coast because there was no way they could go inland and build a house, build shelter. In the dead of winter, you can't even put a shovel in the ground. They had to stay on that boat for six months. By the Thanksgiving that we all understand is the first Thanksgiving in November of 1621, of those, actually only 102 people left England after the Speedwell went down. Only half of those were still alive. Of the 13 adult women, only three survived to Thanksgiving. The, the, the death, the hardship the winters, Indians. This is the toughest of the tough. These are people for whom freedom was so radically important that they were willing to sacrifice all these things, put their lives and everything they had on the line to see if something could be better. And they had no guarantee. They didn't know. Fast forward 150 years to 1776, and yes, now the the seaboard has become a nice, comfortable place to live. The farms are in place, the houses are up, but the freedom is not there, and it's getting pushed on them more and more. And so this strong stock of people, these freedom-loving people, were able to do it again, to take everything that they had built up over 150 years and tear it down in order to get to the other side. This is what freedom really looks like if you want it badly enough. It is so difficult for us to understand this. It's so difficult for us to really understand what it takes to be free, the radical notion of what this is all about. To tear it all up is our choice too. To make ourselves unsecure, unsafe again for a time so that we can move through Everything that you have built up in your life, emotionally, psychologically, physically, financially, it's what you use right now to feel secure. 
But the freedom that Jesus is talking about lies on the other side of that. Are you willing to tear all that up? You know? Break up the soil again. Plant new seed. Whatever metaphor you want to use to try to get out to the other side. This is what it looks like. That's the choice for us right now. If we really want to get to this complete freedom that Jesus is talking about. If we aren't focused on just security. Some of you know that when I left high school, I joined a monastery. And I thought I was joining my spiritual journey. I thought that I was embarking on my own I don't know, religious vocation. I found out, and as I look at it now, I realize that all the choices I, were ma- I was making at that time were made out of fear. When I got out of high school, I had no idea what to do. I had no idea where I was going. The only thing that I knew and the only thing that seemed solid to me were the brothers that taught me in high school, two of them especially, that became like big brothers to me. And I could go and throw rocks at Brother Ski's window at 2 o'clock in the morning and he would come down and talk to me in the foyer and talk me down, you know. And I wanted to be able to do that for other guys. That was one thing. But what I didn't realize is that a religious vocation is not about what you do for your job. It's about this stark reality of being deeply connected to our God. And I was completely unprepared for that. I was completely unprepared for what that meant. As I look back now, there were 10 of us, they called us postulants, first year guys, all 18, 19, fresh out of high school. Of those 10, I can look back and say, there's only one that I am pretty sure was there for the right reasons. You know, the rest of us were all there. I don't know. Nothing better to do. We're in love with the idea of being a monastic. Had no idea what that really meant. We're trying to escape from the thought of life being too much. There were so many different reasons. And it wasn't just our first year, but the older monks that were there too. You know, some of them were there that were alcoholics and, and this and that. They were there for all different sorts of reasons. It was the first time I realized that clerics, just because they put on the collar, doesn't set them apart from the human race. They're still going through all the stuff that we're going through, making their choices as best they can as well. And so, again, motives has everything to do with this. It's so easy for us to engage in spirituality looking for security, looking for salvation, looking for something to make us feel better, feel more secure, rather than the stripping away process that is the genuine article, this way of Jesus as he talks about it. And it's so hard to know we're doing it while we're doing it. There's a book called In the Spirit of Happiness. And it's by the monks of New Skeet, which is a uh, modern day monastery that's set up in upstate New York, 50 years old just this year. And this book is kind of taking a look at monasticism, but applying it to everyday life for the rest of us who are not monastics. And through the, the, um, the character of what they call the seeker, someone who has come into their, their order to try to see if this is a place where he can land and live the rest of his life, they're trying to get a point across here in this one chapter. And I wanted to read just a few paragraphs because I think it will really help us to understand what we're dealing with. The seeker explained, When I became a novice, that's a person in their first year, another word for that, everything about monastic life was new and interesting. Overnight, I became one of a group of like-minded people whose chief priority in life was to search for God. The rhythm of the life I had embraced supported this down to the very minute. Life was choreographed for holiness, with set times for work, prayer, and relaxation, 
a perfect script. Everyone was so decent, so encouraging. From the beginning, I couldn't help being impressed with the community's sense of seriousness and dedication. He paused. The monastic culture itself reinforced this sense of newness, too. I took a new name, a new identity, which further distanced me from the awkwardness of a less-than-comforting past. Instead of secular clothes, I now wore religious habit to services, the sign of my new state in life. Intellectually, the environment was quite stimulating as well. We received approximately 10 hours of instruction each week on all facets of the spiritual life and had a library chock full of wisdom at our disposal. Over and above all these things, however, at the heart of the life, supporting everything, was the steady liturgical prayer anchoring the day in the service of God. No parish that I was aware of could match the sheer beauty evoked by the services. In the liturgical offices, everything was brought together. Instead of the fragmented existence I had wrestled with in the world, here everything harmonized effortlessly. As I floated through those first months, I couldn't help thinking I was finally on the way to sanctity, a new creature absolved of the aimlessness of a former existence. But soon enough, this grace period passed. And almost without realizing it, I discovered myself in a new phase, one pruned of many of the sensuous and mental spiritual comforts I had until so recently come to enjoy. I'm not certain how long it took for them to dry up, maybe six months, maybe longer, but gradually everything became different, more mundane. Nothing had changed, yet everything became different. When I complained to Father Lawrence about this, he looked at me for a moment and said, This is very good. What do you mean? I snapped. Did he catch the tone of my indignation? Because now you're going to get to know yourself in a new way, closer to who you really are. I remember him looking at me directly. What happens to your dedication when you're not getting emotionally rewarded for it anymore? You didn't forget about the struggle, did you? What do you think we've been talking about in class? Haven't there been enough references to this? And of course, he was absolutely right. Once we pass through the honeymoon stage of spirituality, the period of first fervor, our spiritual practice becomes routine and we start to experience the ordinary ups and downs of life. If we happen to be in the monastery, we have been told repeatedly that this would happen. But our disappointment shows that we really didn't understand. We were secretly hoping that we would be the exception to the rule. Usually the transition happens gradually, gently, but inexorably. Our experience forces us to confront the fact that our new rule of life is no longer emotionally gratifying, at least not like it used to be. You mean to tell me all this is necessary, groaned the seeker? This is the real beginning of spiritual life. When the hard work starts, Father continued, Up to now, everything's been preliminary and delightful. Forget that now. Now there's no candy, no unusual emotional gratification. So what do you do? Did you really mean what you said when you were received into the community that the search for God is what you really desire? Now is the time to recall the enthusiasm of our first fervor, the determination to offer ourselves unreservedly, and at the same time to let go of the craving for emotional consolation. Father shrugged his shoulders. If it comes, okay. If it doesn't come, okay. (laughs) So, wait a minute. You're probably thinking, are you telling me that I can't even want to feel good? You know, I can't even want to feel closeness to God? 
You know, is there something wrong with that? And the answer is, of course not. Of course there's nothing wrong with that. But if that is your motive, if that's what you're after, then as Jesus would say, you have your reward in full. This is what we have to understand. If we go for freedom, then everything changes. But if we're stuck here, then we're not going to be able to move forward. And this is what this is all about. This is what we're trying to get through. The key line that Father Lawrence said in that whole discourse is what happens to dedication? What happens to your dedication when you're not getting emotionally rewarded for it anymore? This is where the growth to freedom actually begins. When all of that stops, when all of that starts to plateau, and it seems so counterintuitive. It seems like we should be after that. It seems like that feeling of closeness, that maybe even ecstatic feeling in our prayer life is showing us that we're closest to God. But I've told this story before. There's an ancient desert father story of a young monk who was so in his first fervor that he actually levitated above his brothers during prayer in in the uh, sanctuary. And finally, after a few months of this, the, the old abbot came, you, get down, get on the floor, get with your brothers and grow up. See, we would think levitation, oh my God, I've really arrived. But that's just the first bit. And until that fades, until you're back down on the ground, both feet on the ground, connected, you can't go through this process of letting everything go, the stripping down that puts us in face to face. The true freedom with true truth. This is where Jesus, and Jesus is always talking about motives. Take a look at Matthew 6 real quickly here. Verses 1 through 6. All of Jesus' confrontations with the Pharisees were over religious motives, the motives to their spirituality. And Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound the trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. What is the motive there? To be seen, how much you're giving. Jews measured their righteousness by their prayers, their gifts to the poor, and their fasting. To do all that in public, to have everyone see what you're doing, was raising their currency, was self-aggrandizing, was advancing them. Jesus is saying, you've got to be aware of all this stuff. What is it that is impelling you to do what you do? But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Ain't no more coming. The path to freedom is blocked. They are still completely enslaved by their need compulsively, obsessively for these things. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Spirituality or religion used for security, used for advancement. Jesus would say, you've got your reward. Whatever that has gotten you here and now, that's it. It doesn't go any further. It has no power to get you to freedom. And freedom is really where we're at. This is what it's about. But if we can let go of our need for security, 
let go of that codependence as a motive, which means that we know enough about our Father to know that all these things are already ours. That's the only way this works. We need security. We need love and acceptance as human beings. But if we're constantly trying to get it out there, we remain enslaved by our obsessions. But to know this Father of life tells us and shows us that everything is already here. It's already ours. And that's the irony. The freedom that comes from truth is that our our lives are already secure. We don't have to go after that. Nothing needs to be done or felt to make it any more real. And until we know this experientially, not intellectually, we will always seek other than freedom. Freedom will always be too risky. And we won't do what freedom requires, which is to let this stuff go. Now, it may sound that I'm painting a really bleak picture of the spiritual life. I hope that's not the case. But if it is, if this just sounds so scary and so unemotional and unfeeling, that's not it at all. That's not what I'm trying to do. It's just actually the opposite. See, change doesn't hurt. Resistance to change is excruciating. The more we resist the change, the change that life is going to bring us as it strips away the things that we've built up, the more that our spiritual journey takes us into places that we didn't expect, that don't feel right, where God feels remote or far from us, the resistance to that change is what is going to hurt. And it's going to hurt us here and now emotionally, but it's also going to keep us from the goal of freedom because we won't continue to do the things that we need to do. And so I hope that you can see that what really is at at issue here is that when you feel disconnected from God, when you feel that dark night of the soul and you think something is wrong, the truth is nothing is wrong. You're right where you're supposed to be. Everything is going where it's supposed to be going. This is your opportunity to be able to see truth as it really is, to find freedom as freedom really is as we move through these and we will cycle. Out of that depth comes another peak and crest and then another and we will continue to cycle and that is the rhythm of all human life and it's certainly the rhythm of the spiritual life. We don't need to fear it. There is nothing wrong with us. We're right on track. We're right where we're supposed to be. On the way to freedom that will be its own reward. And if we can trust that concept just enough then we can engage in this way of Jesus And we don't have to wait for old age to strip everything away so that we can finally be free and comfortable in our own skin. Which is what kingdom will finally bring us. The ability to be completely comfortable this moment, this perfect moment, without any artificial ingredients needed, without needing to be somewhere else. We can be here, be now, and be perfectly content. That's what Jesus is driving us toward. Let's pray. Father, that freedom is what we want. Thank you for making it available to us. Thank you for giving us the ability to choose freely. Help our fears, help our unbelief, help us in everything, in every way that we need to be helped in order to find our way through all of this. 
Help us to see that the things that seem so difficult and so destructive in our lives often are just the natural ebb and flow of what we're going through. Thank you for being with us every step of the way, for never leaving or forsaking us, even when it seems that you have. Help us more and more to tune into your presence every moment, every day, and to know that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's all stand.